welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We come now to uh, a continuation of an encounter that Christ had with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and that is the impact that it had on their lives, and they run back and tell the others, and then a special guest comes to dinner. It's quite a story. We're going to pick up Luke chapter 22, and we're going to go from verse 33 to 43. So together with open hearts, will you hear with me God's word Luke writes, And they rose, speaking of the two disciples in Emmaus, they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and see my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. This is God's amazing word. May he speak to us in all of its power. Father, we thank you for this tremendous story, supernatural yet fully human, filled with the frailties of man and the mighty presence of God. We thank you for it. We thank you that they were there in their doubts so that we could be here in our learning. God, use your word to help us see Jesus. In his mighty name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Well, I spent a little time this week in something you might do from time to time. Uh, I, I entertained myself on Google. <laughs> now, don't you tell me what your search history might show that you search, you know. You might have something to do with cats if you're Pastor Dan, but anyway. <laughs> I'm really sorry, brother. But you brought it up in staff today, or staff meeting this week. Now, I was doing a little Google search, and uh, mine was serious because I was moving once again to teach you about the resurrection of Jesus. And so um, I wanted to touch on uh, the sustainability of that as a belief among Christians. And so I, I Googled in two requests. First thing I typed into the field was, how many religions are there in the world? You may guess, but... 
Google surprised me. It was actually higher than I thought, over 4,000. By the way, 85%, it went on to say that 85% of all people living in the world, the the entire 8 billion population, so 6 billion or so, 85% of the people currently living on the planet believe in one of those 4,000 plus religions. How many religions in in, in the world? I asked Google. The response, over 4,000. Then I typed in this request. How many religious leaders have predicted their own resurrection? 4,000 plus religions. One answer, Jesus of Nazareth. I went through page after page. Jesus of Nazareth. And I imagine I didn't do this, but I could have typed in after that how many religious leaders in history have predicted their own resurrection and fulfilled it. And of course it would have said only, but but the first question is, is, is sufficient. How many religious leaders in history predicted their own resurrection? Jesus of Nazareth, he alone, I double checked Google, I went to Encyclopedia Britannica, the, the, the source when I was growing up. Nothing's changed. Jesus of Nazareth, he alone. So, uh, wow. Think about those numbers. Think about what that implies. 4,000 religions plus in the world, and only one individual predicted and fulfilled the prediction of his own resurrection in history, Jesus of Nazareth. And so that means that you and I, as present-day believers in the risen Lord Jesus, listen, we have, without dispute, the most unique spiritual message on planet Earth. Isn't that what that means? Isn't that what that means? We have, spiritually speaking, the most unique message on planet Earth. So here's a question. I didn't type it into Google. I'm going to type it into your brain. Why don't we act like it? Think about that. The most unique message, spiritually speaking, in planetary history, but why don't we act more like it? Where is our confidence, and where is our action, and where is our proclamation of that message? You already know that it's not where we want it to be. You know in your heart of hearts, in your life, it is probably not where you want it to be. So why don't we act like it was my question to myself, and my answer had to be, it's because we have not been impacted by the resurrection as we should. That's the only possible answer. It's all there. The history's all there. The Bible predictions are all there. The, the facts are all there. The, everything, the evidences, the understanding, the reality of the resurrection, which I've been preaching to you through Luke 24 for several weeks now, it's all there, but it must not have impacted us enough to make it the most powerful and unique message that we have. We have a lack of confidence in the greatest message in the world. And yet I reflected on these people, these two disciples running from Emmaus, having met Jesus, and they had no trouble being impacted by the message and no trouble being anxious to bear it to others. And so did the disciples who came out of this. The first witnesses, oh, they were impacted by the message of the resurrection. So I'm going to go into their story today, and I want to borrow some observations from how the resurrection impacted them, and I want to re-impact your heart and my heart. To do that, I'm just going to take a look at the passage, and uh, 
I've broken my observations down into, into two impacts that the resurrection had. First was an impact of motivation. We see that in the action in the lives of the two disciples leaving Emmaus and going back to the 11 and the other disciples. And then when Jesus arrives in the room, there is the second thing, and that is the realization of the resurrection. In other words, Jesus made it crystal clear that his resurrection was a real factor. He was really present with them. And they never forgot the depths of the reality that he showed them and actually proved his presence to them with. So that's where we're going today. Let's look, first of all, impact one, the motivation of the resurrection. Now, when I say that, and you haven't been with us for the last few weeks, you may misunderstand me. You might be thinking, what's the motivation behind the resurrection? In other words, am I talking about why God raised his son from the dead? No, I'm not talking about the motivation behind the resurrection. I'm talking about the motivation that gets into you once you believe it. I'm talking about the motivation that suddenly arrived in their hearts and minds when they knew that they had seen Jesus, when they understood why he had to die and that he would rise, when they understood that he had risen and that he was present with them and it all came together, motivation suddenly lit off in these guys. They went from despair earlier in the day as they were walking home to Emmaus in total spiritual depression and then we see in this text complete spiritual motivation. They're an example of what should happen when the resurrection impacts you, this unique message. So that's what I want to bring out to you. The two people in the beginning of this story saw Jesus, understood why he had to rise, they believed, and then they declared it. The first thing they do is get up from that dinner table, don't they? And they go and take the message. So we're going to pick it up in the middle of their story. So we're going to open in detail the verses that I read to you, verses 33 to 43. But we need to go back and, and rehearse their story a little bit because this really does kind of come in, in the midpoint of what happened to the dis two disciples on the road to Emmaus, whose lives we looked at previously. Now, this entire event, in fact, everything in Luke chapter 24 uh, going up to uh, verse 49, the first, the 49 verses, first 49 verses all take place on what we call resurrection day. The resurrection had occurred in the early morning hours of the first day of the week, Luke 24, 1, and then the women had gone to the tomb and seen the stone rolled away, and, and, and they, they had met the angels who declared to them the resurrection. They saw there was no body. They ran back to the disciples who were huddled in, in an upper room hiding in fear, and they declared that the angels had told them Jesus had risen and that the body was not there, and we know that the disciples were responded. This is not, you won't see this on the screen, but back earlier we saw in verses 9 and 11 of Luke 24 that the word seemed in them an idle tale and they did not believe them, even though John and Peter ran to the tomb to see what had gone on. They didn't believe in the resurrection, but they wanted to see what was behind these words and they found no body either. But the disciples were still in this hover mode of fear of the Jewish authorities arresting them and total disbelief that Jesus could have risen because they were not expecting the resurrection. They didn't understand the doctrine of the resurrection. They had expected a human political savior. And when Jesus was crucified, all their hopes in him died with him. 
So there was an atmosphere of unbelief. It was so deep that as the disciples were there in the upper room that morning after the women had told their story and Peter and John had gone and seen the tomb, they were still shrouded in unbelief. And the unbelief was so deep that two of the disciples in the room left and just decided to walk and leave Jerusalem and go back to their hometown. Because the text says that there were more than the 11 disciples in the upper room. It says the rest who were there in verse nine. So there were other disciples The women were there. They had gone and come back. There were other disciples, two of whom were these two disciples who lived in Emmaus. And so in verse 13, that day, later in the resurrection, on resurrection day, in their spiritual depression, they leave the other disciples and they walk to their hometown. They're leaving the whole experience behind, the whole collapse of their faith behind. They're walking away from hope back to the depths of their old life. They're in total spiritual depression. And so that's where they are walking in verse 13 on the road to Emmaus back home. Now we know what happens then. Jesus walks up beside them in his resurrected body. But the Bible says that they Their eyes were, were kept from recognizing him. God had a plan in mind. Before they saw the risen Jesus, he wanted to open the word to them as an as an unsuspecting person to show them that the word alone is everything they needed to know about the the prediction of the resurrection and the reality of it. And so he walks beside them and he interviews them. It's so quaint. He draws it out. What are you guys talking about? Why are you so bummed out? And they stop and they're stunned and they they stop in the middle of the road and say, "Are are you the only person in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's been going on? We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, the one whom we hoped was the Messiah, who began with such great prophecy and miracles and teaching, and our own rulers condemned him to death, and he's been been crucified. There were rumors that, that he'd risen from the dead, but we don't believe them. We don't think there's any basis to them. It's three days now since his crucifixion. We're walking home from a total disappointment. And Jesus so wonderfully stops them and and uh, kindly rebukes them in verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He opened the word of God. The word there is hermeneutics, from which we get hermeneutics, which is the, the art and science of opening the meaning of scripture to hearts. That's what I do each each week. And that's what Jesus did on the road. And he showed them all that the prophets had said about the real Messiah's purpose, that he had to come first as a suffering savior before he comes as a reigning king. And that all the prophecies were fulfilled. And all of this wasn't a disaster. It was a divine plan. And that all of it had worked completely perfectly. And they should not be disbelieving in the resurrection because the resurrection had been predicted too, not just by the Old Testament scripture, but by Jesus himself many times. So they're walking, Jesus is talking, and they go along the road, and all of this starts to tumble into their minds, and they begin to understand. They draw into their village. They want to know more. They invite Jesus into the house to stay the night. And as they're sitting at the table, Jesus begins to break the bread for them. And in that moment, the Bible says, as he broke the bread, their eyes were opened, 
and they recognized him. Oh, precious moment. And then just as quickly, what happens? Jesus vanishes. You see, the purpose really hadn't been for them to see a resurrected body so much as for them to have their hearts turned by the word itself, which is something that every disciple from then till now has the privilege of. The word of God made their hearts burn, and they looked at each other, and they said, did not our hearts burn within us, not while we saw him in his glory, but while he opened the word to us on the way. way." So that's the the backstory, and that was up to verse 32. And immediately after, they look at each other and say, did not our hearts burn as he opened the scripture? Verse 33, our new text says, and they rose that same hour. So they're at a dinner table. It's nighttime, and they rose that same hour. They left dinner on the table, and they got moving. It must have been 8 or 9 o'clock at night, most commentators believe, and they returned to Jerusalem. I think that's a generous word. My opinion, I don't think they returned. I think those boys ran. That's just me. I think they ran. It took about three hours, two to three hours, to walk to Emmaus, about seven miles. I'm pretty sure these boys made it back in under one. Because they had a story to tell. They had been motivated by the reality of the resurrection, not just seeing the risen Jesus, but understanding that all of this actually is biblical. It actually had to happen. The whole plan of God is coming true, and it's exactly what God said. So their hearts were filled with this, and they had understood it from the scriptures. They saw the proof in that moment when Jesus visualized, and now they're going to declare it, and so they rise, and they get going, and they run. Why were they running? Because they believed they needed to tell the disciples that the women were right. I'll take a moment for all the women in the audience to say, thank you. All right. We'll take that one. The women were right. He is risen. And more than that, the Bible predicted all of it. And he did promise it. And so it's all come together. And so they go back and they return to Jerusalem and they found the 11. That means they knew where the 11 were. That means they'd been in the same upper room earlier in the day. So they knew exactly where to go back to. And those who were with them, notice there were other people besides just the 11 disciples minus Judas. There were other disciples, presumably the same women who had testified to them earlier in the day were there too. (laughs) They were prepared to eat a little crow. And so they're excited because they believe that they have seen Jesus and they think they've got this news that, that is just going to blow the minds of the depressed disciples that they had left in the upper room earlier in the day. And so they go, and I'm sure that you look at this passage and they're, they're, they're going to the upper room, verse 33, they know they're all they gathered together, and I'm sure the two disciples thought, man, what are th- we're going to blow their minds. I can't wait to burst into the door and just tell them, He's risen! Well, the text here says, and the Greek, the language is actually structured. I hate to to break your understanding of this, but exactly the reverse happened. It's so comical. As they got in and opened the door and they, they, they they, they opened the door and they were ready to say, guess what? All the other disciples looked at him and said, hey, Jesus is risen. Peter saw him earlier today. That's the construction of the Greek. And if you look at the language, they were saying it. So the two disciples ready to share the news 
the actual other disciples had already come to believe it because Simon Peter had met Jesus in the first private resurrection encounter. And he had come back and said, he's risen, I saw him. So what a moment. What a moment. Everybody was declaring the same story. They all had seen him. The Emmaus had disciples had seen him on the road and in, in, at the breaking of bread. And, and the other disciples had just had Peter come back to them sometime earlier and they had told him. And so they're bringing their proof. The Emmaus disciples have the proof on the road. The, in, the disciples in, in the room have the proof from Simon Peter. And so, by the way, you're going to see in Luke's description that he keeps adding proof upon proof upon proof upon proof in this story like a good historian would. I just love this, and I love the personal touches, and I know that uh, the conversation between Jesus and Peter was uh, private. Paul records also that, that Peter had a private audience with the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and we believe it happened earlier on that resurrection day. And I, I, I can't imagine what it was, but I, I'm sure that it was a time where Jesus ministered to Peter, who was struggling with deep grief because Peter had denied him. I mean, think about it for a minute. The one who had denied Jesus three times. That's the one to whom Jesus made his first private appearance. The other appearances had been as, as women came upon him in the garden or here, but the first intentional private appearance of the Lord Jesus was to the greatest spiritual failure of that generation. I'm so encouraged. Because there's many times in my life when I'm the greatest spiritual failure in my little generation and I struggle with guilt over failing my Lord. How about you? I don't know what happened, but I believe in that hour Peter experienced what David experienced when David said, oh, he restored my soul. What words of comfort, what words of confirmation must have been shared. And I don't know about where you're at. Maybe you're really slipping in your walk with the Lord. The old-time believers used to have a phrase, backslidden. <laughs> Don't use that much anymore. I kind of wish we would because it meant we cared back then. We ought to care more now. Maybe your walk with the Lord is in real shaky ground. You're struggling with guilt over things you've done or ways you've failed him. Maybe you even come, have come close to denying him. Maybe you've become entangled in a and habitual sin that's strangling your spiritual life, and you're embarrassed to come before him. Oh, don't you be embarrassed. He died for your restoration. Just come and repent. And just like with Peter, he'll be there for you. I know from personal experience that you should look to the Lord because he's looking for you. That's him. So that beautiful experience had must have happened that day. And Peter was so filled with new confidence, he wasn't hiding any longer. He'd been by himself alone in his grief for a day or two. But no, what does he do? In new confidence, he's restored. He goes back to the others, and he goes to the upper room. He'd been there earlier in the day, but God knows what he was struggling with. He goes back, not embarrassed anymore. And he's part of the whole circle. Well, 
The two disciples at the door find out that everybody understands and has seen Jesus, and they add their testimony, verse 35. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So the upper room disciples told their story from Peter's description that they'd just gotten that day, and the Emmaus disciples add their proof about what had happened with Jesus there. And so their story is is heard. So the joy level just kept growing. It just kept escalating. They talked about the moment in the breaking of the bread when they recognized him. Maybe spiritually it was dawning on them. The scriptures were burning in their hearts. They saw all this had to make sense and they were beginning to believe. And then as Jesus prayed and blessed the bread, something about that voice began to, to, to touch their memory and maybe even the edges of his robe moved up and they saw the nail marks. But the Bible does say that as they were perhaps coming to spiritually believe, God opened their physical eyes. God opened their eyes too. So it all must have been the moment that they described. Well, that's why they broke out of their despair and they went and told the others. So the first principle here is the motivation of the resurrection. If you truly believe he has risen, you will be motivated to share it. If you truly understand the power and, predict, and predictions of the resurrection and the proofs of it, you will be motivated to share it. And, and here's something else. If you're ready to share it, there's probably somebody ready to hear it. Now, God arranges what we call, in our, in our world, we call them divine appointments. You ever had one? Ever been in one? It's pretty cool when you're sharing something and somebody is, you, you, you know afterward was divinely appointed to be there to hear that either as a skeptic to hear it and come closer to Christ or maybe as a believer needing encouragement. Well, I think this was a divine appointment. The the, the commentators have looked at verse uh, 33 and found something curious in the Greek construction that it says they were gathered together and it doesn't say that they gathered themselves. It's, It's another one of those passive voice constructions in the Greek language. It's another one of those divine passives. In other words, somebody gathered them together. They were gathered together in that evening for that purpose, to get the testimony of the two Emmaus disciples into their hearts, to add to the testimony of Simon Peter earlier in the day, and to meet someone else in just a moment. (laughs) But God gathered them together to reveal his truth and to encourage their hearts. And the the Emmaus disciples went to a ready audience is what I'm saying. So if you truly believe he has risen, you will be motivated to share it. And if you build up your courage to share it, don't be surprised if you find that there was somebody divinely appointed to be there to hear it. The motivation of the resurrection. Let's go secondly to the realization of the resurrection. This appearance of the Lord Jesus beginning in verse 36. Now, as I begin to describe the text before I go into the details of the text, I want to talk a little bit about how we come to believe things. Um, A lot of what we reject, we reject because we reject the premise, and we just don't even want to hear a possibility. On the other hand, if we accept the premise that something's possible and then we're open to proofs. 
And one of the things that happened in my young life was that though I'd been raised a skeptic and brought up as, as a materialist and, a, and an evolutionist in my young life, um, there came a point where I had to believe and understand that uh, I was denying the premise that the supernatural was possible. When I did begin to accept and see my bias and open to my mind to the fact that this is not a closed universe and a closed system, but the potentiality of supernatural events are possible, then I opened myself up to the proofs of the resurrection. And part of the reason I did that is because I was simply being honest, because I, as I thought about it, um, I had accepted certain premises to believe evolution. So let me explain this to you. I mean, let me restate the principle. If you simply accept that the, the premise that the supernatural is possible, then the resurrection is eminently provable. And that's what happened to me. I had to admit my bias. And part of it was somebody exposed my bias about looking at how evolution had been proven. Because when I looked at evolution, it was revealed to me, and it was pretty substantial, that as an evolutionist, I had accepted the premise of the un, that the, the unprovable can be certain. because you cannot prove anything in the laboratory about origins. You cannot replicate the conditions, and no one was there at the time to observe it. So you're making a philosophical leap. If you become evolutionist, you are accepting a premise that the unprovable can still be certain. And you're doing that because you've accepted another premise that I was brought up in, and that is that reason is reliable. Human reason is the, is the fountain of answers to all things. Human reason can be trusted to reveal the unknowable. And that was the bias I lived with. And that's why I believed evolution without ever questioning it. Until that was pointed out to me in conversations that I was being inconsistent. As an evolutionist, I accepted the premise that the unprovable is, it can be certain anyway and that reason is reliable. I wanted to, 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 make, to, to make sure that, that my bias was, well, not make sure, but I wanted to explore if my bias back then as an evolutionist was still the evolutionary bias today. So I re-researched evolution this week. And I went back to, to some sources to see what the current explanations are for uh, how life originated, the original alpha point of evolution. And I went to uh, the, the science department at UC Berkeley, not physically, but I went electronically. And I went to their resources in which they answer the question, how did life begin? This is from their understanding evolution resource. This is their exact language from UC Berkeley science department, read this week. Here's their answer, the origin of life according to the evolutionary understanding under the heading on their, on their webpage, Understanding Evolution, UC Berkeley Science Department. Life almost certainly originated in a series of small steps. Simple organic molecules were formed. Simple organic molecules, similar to a nucleotide, are the building blocks of life and must have been involved in its origin. Experiments suggest, by the way, my gestures are intentional here. 
that organic molecules could have synthesized in the atmosphere of early earth and rained down into the oceans. If you think that sounds a lot like they're saying life just came down out of the sky, you're onto something. Simple organic molecules were formed. Step two, replicating molecules evolved. All living things reproduce, copying their genetic material and passing it on to their offspring. By the way, they're observing that something God built into creation. He, he needs a little credit there in the bottom, but anyway. Third, some cells began to evolve modern metabolic processes. Everything changed when some cell or group of cells evolved to use different types of molecules for different functions. Step four, multicellularity evolved. As early as two billion years ago, some cells stopped going their separate ways after replicating and evolved specialized functions. I'm going to stop there because I'm going to point out what you've already begun to giggle over. And that is that they're using language that betrays that they really don't and can't know. Must have, almost certainly. Experiments suggest organic molecules could have. Some cell, some group could have, must have, would have probably did. I'll tell you what, if you got up in front of a fourth grade class and you tried to describe your math assignment in the same language, well, this answer could be that or might be that. They might even ask you to sit down. I know because I tried it in fourth grade in Mrs. Menningberg's class and I got told to sit down. What I'm pointing out here is what was pointed out to me, and that is belief in the, in the ultimate truth and reliability of evolution is entirely a faith proposition. Could have, must have, would have, probably did. They believe it because they think it could have happened, but there is no scientifically reliable proof according to the scientific method. It is a total faith proposition. And so I was challenged and I'll challenge you. Why can't we start from the same premise? If it was a faith proposition to believe in a natural, rational origin, origin of the universe and sustaining of the universe that could have, must have, would have, or probably did happen, what's the difference? Why can't I start but from the, same, from the premise that the resurrection and the supernatural, the supernatural is possible, the supernatural is ultimate, and that the resurrection could have happened. They started with the idea that evolution could have happened, and they've ended up with no ultimate proof. I started in my faith journey by admitting, well, maybe the resurrection could have happened. I opened my mind to that possibility, to the supernatural moving into a system, and, and lo and behold, then I found lots of proof. There's a difference in these two stories. When I opened myself to the faith proposition that the supernatural is possible and that the resurrection could have occurred, then I began to listen to the Christians and I began to look at their books and I began to read what, what they handed me in their scriptures and I began to see that there is tons of proof for the resurrection. 
The problem was my bias. And of course, Luke is writing to a secular culture, a Greco-Roman society. But it was not a society that was a closed scientific society like ours is. They understood that the supernatural could be possible. And so what Luke is doing in his account is he's building what I would call a pyramid of proof in this chapter. He begins with circumstantial proof, the empty tomb. All historians, sacred and secular, believers and atheistic, admit the tomb was empty on the third day. So the circumstantial evidence, and Luke goes into the detail of how empty it was. Eyewitnesses looking at the ledge where the body had been, looking at the grave clothes still in the cocoon, hardened cocoon they were in, where a body could only have passed right through them. So there's tons of circumstantial evidence that historian Luke gives us. And then he moves on to testimonial evidence from supernatural beings, angels who revealed that the supernatural can invade the natural, and they gave testimony. And the women's testimony as the first eyewitnesses. So you go from circumstantial evidence through testimonial evidence, and now when Jesus walks into the room, you go to visible evidence. Physical evidence. The evidence of the senses. And they realize to their core that the resurrection happened. And he is risen indeed. So let me go through this, this passage then and, and, and show you what I think is one of the great highlights of it, and that is the fact that Jesus Christ presented them with visible and physical evidences. And this was not simply for story effect. This was very intentional. Now, um, it's commonly admitted, you can research this on LiveScience.com if you want, that there are five human senses. LiveScience.com, touch, sight, hearing, smell, and taste. I think you'll verify. I see in this passage, Jesus uses at least the first three, and I'm going to hold the other two in suspense for you touch, sight, and hearing. Walk through this and see the event. As they were talking about these things, so the two guys from Emmaus have found chairs at the end of the table, and they're sharing their story about how Jesus was there and the, opened the scriptures, and they understand how it's all biblically predicted now. And, and at the moment when he break, broke the bread, their eyes were open, and they saw him, and then, shoom, he disappeared as soon as I... And this is my imagination as soon as, it, and he disappeared, guess who shows up? This is just my dramatic, boom, there he is in the room. May not have happened that way, but in the Persian version, that's how you're getting it today. So <laughs> it says, as they, who? The, the two disciples in verse 35, the guys from Emmaus, they're talking about these things. When the, he, he, we saw him and then he disappeared Then Jesus himself, Luke uses the same phrase for when he appeared on the road, Jesus himself stood among them. Jesus himself, I think that's Luke's way of saying the real Jesus, the whole Jesus, not some spirit Jesus, not some imagined Jesus, not according to some of the skeptics, a hallucinated Jesus, the 
real Jesus. Body and soul, as they used to say. Body and spirit. Suddenly, he's there in the middle of their sentence. These poor guys, they got upstage twice. Think about it. Oh, wait, anyway, that's, leave that for later. You'll get it. So Jesus suddenly appears. Now, why is this a big deal? Well, because John, John says in John chapter 20 and verse 19, he describes this event because he was there. His memory of it is in John 20, 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. So that's really something. The doors locked, the doors bolted. Minutes earlier, you were there for the, because of the, or earlier in the day, you were there for fear of the Jews. You're still where the doors are still bolted. You still think you might get arrested over this whole thing. So the doors are bolted, and then Jesus is right there. It means, of course, that Jesus materialized in the middle of that room. He didn't knock on the door like the Emmaus guys did. He suddenly was there. And I just love how Resurrection Day, so many people don't understand this, um, Jesus was very busy (laughs) on Resurrection Day. I mean, Scripture describes at least 10 distinct appearances of Christ. Did you know this? Between the resurrection and the ascension. Most of those happen on Resurrection Day. Let me run through them. The first was to Mary Magdalene at the tomb. The second was to the other women on the road heading back to Jerusalem. The third was to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. We just heard their story. So that was appearance number three that day. We just found out about appearance number four. Sometime that afternoon or early evening, he had appeared to Peter. So that's four. This is the fifth to 10 of the 11 disciples. There was somebody that was not here for this appearance that night. What was his name? Thomas. And so Jesus does a return appearance seven days later. That's the sixth appearance to the full 11 with Thomas present. Eight days later, actually, it says in Scripture, John 20. So that's six. The seventh was to seven disciples by the shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's in John 21, where he recommissions Peter to ministry. So that's eight, not seven. Eight is to more than 500 disciples some days later in the 40 days, probably on a mountain in Galilee, as he had predicted and summoned them. And then ninth, He appeared somehow, 1 Corinthians 15 says, he had a private appearance to James, his brother, and James came to believe, and then 10th to the apostles when when he ascended into heaven. That's in Acts 1. But if you look at that, uh, five of the 10 appearances all happened on resurrection day, and they were in different places to different people at different times, in different moments, and man, was he busy. You say, how in the world did he do that? Thank you supernatural. He's risen. He's in his glorified supernatural body. Supernatural means living above the laws of nature. Supernatural. He could do amazing things in his risen glorified form. I love uh, Dr. R.C.H. Lenski, the great commentator, his comments on this. Quote, in his risen and glorified state, Time, space, the rock of the tomb, the walls and the doors of buildings no longer hamper the body of Jesus. He appears when he desires to appear, (laughs) and his visible presence disappears when he desires to have it so. 
This is wholly supernatural, wholly incomprehensible to our minds. You can't kidding. Nor may we ask or seek to comprehend where Jesus stayed during the intervals between his appearances during the 40 days. Tell me you haven't wondered about that. What did Jesus do between seeing Peter and then showing up in the upper room? Did he have to go somewhere? He says, we, 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 we ask these questions, and it's, but it's still incomprehensible to our minds. When our bodies, he goes on, listen to this, this is very cool. When our bodies shall eventually enter the heavenly mode of existence, we may know something of these supreme mysteries. You may then finally know the answer to the question of how Jesus could be here and then there and be visible here and not visible there and be with 500 here and one there. You may, he says, when your body eventually enters the heavenly mode of existence, you may know something of these supreme mysteries. We may all know something, but we doubt if even then we shall really comprehend the profundities, he is a professor, of the divine (laughs) omnipresence of which the human nature of Jesus partakes and which he exercised since his vivification. Oh, Dr. Linsky, his coming to life vivification, I can't even get it out, in the tomb, as in these wondrous appearances. He came and stood in their midst, is all that human thought and language can say. He did not walk through anything. The disciples did not see him take so many steps from the door or the wall to their midst. He was there, and that was all. End of quote. So I'm so excited about that, because basically it means that the glorified supernatural body of the Lord Jesus Christ could do astounding things, had astounding capabilities. And you know what? I'm going to get one. I don't know about you. Nah, 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 nah. I'm going to get one. And so are you if you know the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do I know this? Because the scripture tells me that in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. We're saved. We belong to him. We're we're justified. He's he's paid for us. We're part of the family of God. We're adopted. We have a heavenly future. And what we will be has not yet appeared. In other words, spiritually, we're his. But physically and personally, we haven't finished changing and going into all that he has for us. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, I believe that's talking about when we see him at the moment of the rapture. Because that's when something else happens, the resurrection of the Christians. We get our resurrection bodies the moment he appears in the sky and we go to be with him. When he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. I don't know all that involves, but I'm not going to dumb down my Bible. (laughs) If it says that Joe Persh is going to be in his being like Jesus Christ, I'm taking that. I'm excited about that. And I'll be able perhaps to do what he's done. I don't know. Maybe his body has a certain level of glorified power because he's the omnipresent God. I don't want to fill on all the white space, but I do know that I'm going to have a supernatural physical body just like he did. I'll leave it at that. (laughs) And that's that's a great place to leave it. Isn't that exciting? You think about it? And it says, we shall see him as he is. I don't know all that that means, but it means that somehow I'm going to be equipped, my sin nature will be eradicated, and I'll be able in some way to start intaking the ultimate. 
I'll be able to be in the very presence of the holiness of God in his throne room and not be blown away, not be disintegrated because of sin. And I'm going to have the, the ability to take in who he is and what he is like. And that ability will never end. And I will never stop taking in who he is and what he is like when he gives me the capacities that that body will have. And the absence of sin will allow. I think that's pretty exciting. But, you know, the Bible makes it even clearer in Philippians chapter 3, just for another blessing for your life. Philippians 3.20. Paul writes, but our citizenship is in heaven. It's where you belong. It's where you're headed. Your passport's been cleared. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't you waiting for the rapture? Aren't you waiting for that moment? May it happen today when Jesus comes back in the clouds for you and for me. When he does, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 that you and I will be changed in a nanosecond, and not only will we be with Jesus, not only will our sin nature be eradicated, but we're going to get our resurrection bodies. It's crazy. And in that moment, he will transform, verse 21, our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Now, I'm telling you what, my Bible says I'm going to have a body like his glorious body. And he's going to do it by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Well, go ahead and be blessed. I don't mind. (laughs) So Jesus himself stood among them in supernatural presence and power. Now, let's follow how he begins to use the senses to prove them. Well, he's already used sense number one. Well, one of the senses, and that is sight, right? They're seeing him right there. Their eyes are not glazed over like he did with the disciples at Emmaus. He wants them to see him. So he proves his resurrection through the first of the five senses, and that's sight. He's standing right there, and it's a sudden entrance. They have to look at him. He's right there. They recognize him, of course. He moves quickly to the second. As you look at Luke 24, he moves quickly to the second, and he, he, he himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. Which of the senses is he using now? Hearing. Peace to you. Now, why did he say that? I think for two reasons. One was he was being polite because that's how they greeted each other. This is just another everyday event to Jesus. How are you doing? Peace be to you. But it wasn't just politeness. He was having pity because if you look at the next verse, they were absolutely in a panic. They were startled and frightened. Frightened, we got our word phobia from it. The Greek word phobos, stepping back, frightened, scared. And of course he says, peace, peace to you. <laughs> Settle down. <laughs> peace to you. So he uses the sense of sight and the sense of hearing. Now you say, well, hadn't they believed that he'd risen? They said that earlier. Peter told us, and he must have been risen. He must have been risen. Well, it's, it's one thing to believe he's risen, and it's the other for Jesus to suddenly be standing there in your living room. And so for that moment, 
Um, they, were, they were on what I would call supernatural sensory overload. Intellectually, they believed it, but now they were seeing it, and they weren't sure they could believe their eyes. That's what's going on. They're in shock. Now, Jesus chides them a little bit in verse 38. and saying, guys, this shouldn't be that big of a surprise to you. He said to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? In other words, I waited until quite a few proofs happened. Two of you guys in this room, Peter and John, you saw the empty tomb. I sent two angels, the women saw it, and then they saw me. So there's, look what Luke's doing, evidence upon evidence upon evidence upon evidence. Jesus is kind of saying, guys, you shouldn't be that surprised by now. And I just sent two guys to you out of breath from Emmaus to say that they saw me too. But I love the graciousness of Jesus, even though by now, by faith, they should have not been so surprised because of their supernatural sensory overload, he brings them the third of the five senses. Verse 39. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. What's he showing them? The nail marks. The nail marks. They recognize the face. And now they recognize the wounds. And then he, he says, See my hands and my faith that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And there's the third of the five senses. Touch me. Go ahead. We don't have a specific statement that says that they touched him, but John said 60 years later in 1 John 1, Oh, we remember the one, the prince of life, whom we heard with our ears, saw with our eyes, and touched with our hands, handled. Maybe going around the wrist, putting a palm to a palm. They touched him, perhaps. Now, the first of the three sentences have been used, sight, hearing, and touch. The story concludes, verse 41, and while they still disbelieved, now you're saying, boy, this, thing, this is confusing. I thought they believed before, when they, before the Emmaus guys showed up intellectually, and, and, and they, now they're seeing Jesus. They're supernaturally overwhelmed, but it says here they still disbelieved. But now, I think they crossed over and believed it, but this is a different disbelieving. You can, dis, you can disbelieve because you can't, you can't believe something is possible, but this was disbelieving because it's too good to be true. This is the disbelieving, he says, of joy. Have you ever had God work in your life in a mighty way, in a miraculous way, in a way that you hoped for and you needed, and everybody who knew about it said, that was God. Do you remember what it was like do you, do you remember a few moments in your life when you could hardly believe it? Because it was so awesome. I think that's where these were. Give them grace. And so, to cap it off, to help them through their disbelief of joy to the final place of realizing he really rose, Jesus does something that's just remarkable. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? 
This was the piece de resistance. Now there's some Greek texts that insert something between verse 42 and verse 43, and it's, the, it's these words, Jesus said, check this out. No, those are not Greek texts. Just my wondering. But I think that might have been his mood. Hey guys, check this out. Got anything here to eat? Peter probably found one out and found a nice little broiled fish. And Jesus took it, looked at them all, slipped it into his supernatural lips, chewed it, swallowed it, and then said, mm, That's good. That's where I think he borrowed the last two senses taste and smell. Must have smelled the fish in the room. Must have saw him taste it. All five human senses in a supernatural encounter. And they realized he was risen. How gracious is God to show us in our doubt and our frailty all we would need to know to believe the near unbelievable and bring us to the realization of the resurrection. What a night. Yeah? They began that night huddled in fear. When Jesus appeared suddenly in the room, they progressed through shock. Then they traveled through joy, and they arrived at belief because they saw proof. Think about it. For a few joyous hours that night, because it doesn't say Jesus shoomped, disappeared right away. I think he stayed. I think they all had fish together. <laughs> and I think he began to just open their minds with the word of God, began their pathway of understanding that would continue. We're going to see how that continues next week. But for a few joyous hours that night, these people, Ten disciples, the Emmaus guys, some other disciples, and the women who had gone to the tomb and first believed the story, everybody in that packed room, they were the only humans on planet Earth that knew the whole story. The saving story. The most unique message in all the world. But as we'll see next time, Jesus would tell them that this joyous message is for sharing. And boy, did they share it. And because they did share it 2,000 years later, we now believe it. And it's still the most unique message in the world, isn't it? 4,000 religions, one risen Savior. Can we be as confident as they were? Well, almost. I mean, we weren't there there, right? They had a unique experience. But I believe them. No reason for me not to if I set aside my bias. And I also know that the risen Jesus has showed up in the upper room of my life more than once. When I've been in crisis, 
and what I needed to believe over 40 plus years and given me the encouragement I needed. The resurrection, it is real. Thank you.